Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to First Free Church. So glad you are here. For those of you that are in person in the room right now, welcome. We are really, really glad that you are here with us. Maybe someone is watching out on the north patio right now, so welcome to you. And if you are at home right now, welcome to you as well. We welcome you to First Free Church. My name is Adam. I'm the senior pastor here. So if you are here for the first time, which I've already met some families that are here for the first time, we're really glad you're here today. And I hope that you enjoy the service and that it's encouraging to you and that God speaks to you today, both through the worship time, which we already had, and through the message, which we are about to have. Right now, we did the numbers last week, and about 80% of our church is still watching online. So that means, as many of you are in the room right now, about four times that many are watching online, either in the earlier service at the 9 o'clock or the 11 a.m. service, and those two services are, are fairly even, actually, in how many people watch at those two. So um, it's just important for us to know that, that a big part of our local body of Christ here is not in the room right now, and for you at home who are watching at home right now to know that you are not alone. There are, yes, many people in this room here, but many more people like you who are watching from different locations all over the region. And so we just want you to know that, that you're not alone. We love you. We care about you. And whenever you're ready to come back, we're ready for you. We do have more room here, and we're all social distance here. Everyone in here is wearing a mask except for me, so you're welcome to come back whenever you're ready to do so. Well, today I want to talk with you about food. And I know that's not what you came to hear about. You came to hear about the Bible, but we'll get there. First, I want to talk about food. I love food. How many of you like food? Who really, anybody have like a really, like a really awesome, healthy food that you love? Who has a really good, healthy food that you just love? Pizza. Yeah, veggie pizza, right? With a good, healthy layer of cream cheese on there? Absolutely, that's healthy. The veggies counter the dairy, right? That's what I heard. What else? What's a good, healthy food that you love to eat? Strawberries, for sure. What else? Apples. I love apples. What else? I couldn't hear that. Homemade food. Yeah, absolutely. I love homemade food for sure. I absolutely love food. And, you know, I've been at this church for almost three years now. So it was the first week of November was my first week here at First Free Church. It's a lot of first thrown in there, but it's part of our name. So, okay. And, you know, one of the nicknames for our church is E-Free, right? Evangelical Free Church. Um, and across the country, evangelical free churches are often known as e-free churches, and they're often just called e-free. So the city that I came from before I lived here, the evangelical free church in that community was just called e-free. I don't even remember what their real name was. It was, it might have been Cornerstone Community Church for all I know, but they were known as e-free. That's just a thing that e-free churches tend to do. That's why our domain name is efree.org. But I learned very quickly that another nickname for this church is Eat Free. Have you guys heard that before? That's a nickname is Eat Free because we love our food. In fact, last night we had an awesome Connections Community Night here in the Activity Center right across the hallway there. We had a bunch of people gathered from our Connections team, which every one of you should totally join. And at that Connections Community Night, we had food, believe it or not. We had a, a phenomenal meal, and we had a great time together. We had a little bit of training. It was, it was a whole fun, fun thing. But we love to eat here. We love our food. And I want to talk to you about some of my favorite foods growing up as a kid. These are some of my favorite foods that I absolutely loved. All right, so let me see if you recognize any of these. This is a box of nerds. Anybody like the candy nerds? It's got all that citric acid. It's just citric acid and sugar is pretty much all it is. That's one of my favorite candies when I was growing up as a kid. What about this one? Reese's peanut butter cups. 
Anybody like, oh, that got a reaction. Okay, we got some, all right. This one's for you. You can have this if you want when we're, when we're done here. I love Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. Um, this is one of my favorite breakfasts when I was a kid. Anybody know what this is? Toaster strudels, yeah? It's like a nicer version of Pop-Tarts. You know what I'm talking about? Not that there's anything wrong with Pop-Tarts, but I love toaster strudels. I used to love this for a snack or just sometimes a meal replacement. Bagel bites, ever bagel bites? Or a close second would be pizza rolls. And uh, honorable mention would be those uh, taquitos that you, you're supposed to put in a toaster oven, but you just stick them in a microwave. And then uh, here's another one. What about this? Reese's Puffs. This was my, yeah, right. This is for you. It's empty, but, you know, I'm not going to say what happened to it. Um, Reese's Puffs are like cocoa puffs, but with peanut butter added to them. So much better. So, so much better. Now, the question I have for you is this. On a scale of 1 to 10, how healthy are these food items? (laughs) That's a lot of zeros. That was pretty quick. Now, I love food, but when I was a kid, I didn't always make the best choices in the food that I ate. As I got older, I started to make better choices in the food that I eat. In fact, I haven't had any of these items in a very long time. The closest thing would be last year, my kids got a lot of the little nerds boxes in their Halloween candy, and some of them may have disappeared. But other than that, I don't eat much of that anymore, to be honest with you. And even as a kid, I didn't eat it a lot, but those were my favorite foods to eat. Now, what do I do when I go to the grocery store? I take a box of food. Do, do any of you do this? If you're, if, you're over, if you're over 30, you do this. If you're under 20, you definitely don't. You look at the ingredients list, right? And you go, okay, um, this has ferrous sulfate? That doesn't sound real good. I don't know what that is. Niacin, thiamine, mononitrate, riboflavin, folic acid, high fructose corn syrup. I know what that is. Um, there's also a protein concentrate, mono and diglycerides. There's carboxymethylcellulose. And we do, that's one of my favorite ingredients. Sodium sulfate, microcrystalline cellulose, bunch of preservatives, TBHQ, artificial color, xanthan gum, guar gum, uh, locust bean gum, whole bunch of gums for some reason in this stuff. Bottom line is, this food has a lot of additives in it. Never mind the fact that it's basically pure sugar with different colors, but it's got a lot of additives in this food. And as I got older, I started to realize that I didn't want to put a ton of additives into my body, you know? And so I started to become more selective in what I had in my diet. And not that I, you know, eat totally healthy all the time, but I try to limit the amount of additives or for some additives, if I see it on the label, I'm just like, nope, I don't think so. I'm not going to get that. And our spiritual diets need to be the same way. Our spiritual diets, both as individuals and as a church, need to be healthy. And we need to be careful what we are putting in them. Our spiritual diets as individuals and our spiritual diets as a church. A lot of times, we can put additives into our spiritual diet that aren't really healthy. Or maybe they're healthy in small quantities with the right motivations. But if we get too addicted to that additive, it can actually become an unhealthy thing for us. The Apostle Paul talks about, in Romans 12, the fact that our bodies are to be offered to Jesus as a living sacrifice. So our bodies as individuals, and not just our physical bodies, but our whole lives is really what he's talking about there, are supposed to be kind of handed over to God to where the things we allow into it need to be things that are carefully selected based on what's going to make us healthy spiritually, make us, make us um, better equipped spiritually. 
and not take away from our relationship with God. The same thing is true in the church. Over and over again in the Bible, the Bible describes the church as the what? The body of Christ. We are a body. And Paul and, and the other apostles write letters about making sure that the wrong things aren't added into the church. So we have a, a personal spiritual body we need to take care of. We have a church body that we need to take care of. And so we have a spiritual diet and things that go into our bodies, both our personal body and our church body collectively. The Bible talks about the word of God being like milk. In fact, the author of Hebrews says that to the, the people he was writing to, he says, you should have graduated from the milk of the word by now. And you should be in solid food right now. You should be in deeper study right now. You should be teaching others right now, but instead you're still stuck on the milk. I mean, there's nothing wrong with the milk, but you're supposed to graduate to solid food. And so over and over again, the Bible talks about our spiritual lives almost like a diet, that we need to be careful what we're putting into our life, what's speaking into our spiritual lives and our beliefs and our walk with God. And we can develop unhealthy problems when we allow the wrong additives into our personal spiritual diet or into our church's spiritual diet. And this is the problem that the believers in the church in Colossae faced. We're in the study of Colossians, where we're working through the book of Colossians together, and the believers in Colossae were in danger of having additives being added to their spiritual diet that would take away from their focus on Jesus. And that's why Paul is writing to them. People were coming in and saying things like, well, Jesus is good, you can keep believing in Jesus, but you need to add this other stuff to that. Jesus is fine, but you need these extra teachings as well, or else God's not going to be happy with you. You've got to do this stuff as well. Now, some of these things, Paul will explain, were based on uh, Jewish religious practices. Some of them stem from the old covenant that was meant for the Jewish people in the nation of Israel, but were not applicable under the new covenant. And so some of these were what Paul calls in other books, Judaizers, who are coming in and trying to tell these Christians, Jesus is good, but he's not enough. You need this other stuff as well. You need these festivals, you need Sabbaths, you need other rituals, you need to abstain from certain foods. All of that gets mentioned in, in this letter to the Colossians. Evidently, some of the additives also stemmed from uh, pagan influence outside the church entirely and outside of Judaism. Some scholars think that it was first uh, Jews who adopted pagan practices and then merge them together and then this was all one group of people that was influencing the Colossians. We don't, we don't really know, but there were evidently some worldly things that were, that were starting to creep into and, and threaten the healthy diet of the church spiritually and the individuals in this church in Colossians. And so these additives were a threat to the health of the believers and the health of this church in Colossae. But of course, it's not enough to just know what to avoid, Right? It's not enough to just know I shouldn't have some, certain additives in my diet. I shouldn't have too much sugar in my diet. I need to consume things in moderation. There are certain things that I'm just going to cut out entirely and not have. There, there are some chemicals, for instance, that I've just decided, and, and my family, my wife and I have decided, we're just not going to eat stuff that has that in it because we just don't think it's healthy for us. But it's not just enough to know what to avoid. You have to know what to consume. You have to know what is healthy for me. What should I be putting into my diet? And that's what we're going to talk about today in Colossians chapter 2. We're going to talk about some of the healthy things that make for a healthy spiritual diet and a healthy church. Paul is going to give us some of the stuff that we need to have in our diet. And as long as you know what you're supposed to be doing, when new things pop up, new additives, new things that might look tempting but could lead you down the wrong way, you can compare them to what is good, what is healthy. And if they don't match up, you can say, that new thing, even though I've never encountered it before, I know that's probably not good for me because it goes against this. 
And so that's what we're going to see today. We're going we're gonna to look just in this passage at four, we'll call them ingredients, four elements of a healthy spiritual diet, both for you as individuals and for the church as a whole. What is going to make for a healthy church? What is going to make for a healthy spiritual life? And these aren't necessarily the only things, but these are certain things that Paul wants to get across to help these believers in Colossae avoid some of the problems that they could face otherwise. So we're going to call this four keys to spiritual health. Four keys to spiritual health. If you've got a Bible with you, go ahead and open it to Colossians chapter 2. If you don't and you just have a phone like one of these, you can open maybe the Version Bible app. I do a lot of Bible reading on there. That's a great way to do it. And you can always just search for Colossians 2 in your browser and pull it up that way as well. And of course, we'll have it on the screens. But before we do that, I'm just going to ask all of you, whether you're here in the room or all of you watching at home, would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray and ask God to teach us from his word this morning. Father, we are so blessed to be able to gather here and gather distributed to worship and learn from you. And that's our prayer today, God, that you would teach us, that you would help us to learn what you want us to learn, that you would make your word fresh to us. There are going to be some concepts that we talk about this morning that are going to feel redundant at first. It's going to seem like repeating the same things that were said earlier because that's what Paul's doing. He's saying the same types of things in a different way, but there are nuances there and insights that are fresh. There are things that we can get out of this that are going to have a difference in our lives. So I pray that you would help us to push aside whatever distractions from the week are keeping us from giving you our undivided attention. Help us to zero in on you and your word and to focus on you, make you the centerpiece of our lives and help us to learn at least one new thing today that we can take and apply this week to help us live our life to better glorify you and represent you in this world. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So if you're in Colossians chapter 2, we're going to look at verse 1 right now. We're going to read verses 1 through 10. We'll stop along the way to note a few things as we go and talk about these four spiritual ingredients. Paul says, I want you to know how much I have agonized for you and for the church at Laodicea, which is not far from Colossae, and for many other believers who have never met me personally. That's a very special thing for Paul to say. He's agonizing for them. And he's never met these people before. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Paul has never met these people, but he's heard about them and he cares deeply for them. Why is he agonizing for them? Well, it's because he's concerned for their spiritual health, yes, but it goes even deeper than that. There's another aspect to it than that, and it's wrapped up in this phrase at the end there, and for many other believers who have never met me personally. There's a special level of concern the Apostle Paul has for the Christians and the churches who he has never been able to touch base with. He didn't start these churches. Epaphras started the church in Colossae. So Paul's only heard about them. Why do you think, genuine question here, why do you think the Apostle Paul is agonizing over all the believers that he has never been able to meet in person? Any thoughts? What's that? A burden to share the gospel. Now, these people, they've trusted in Jesus already, but he's still agonizing over them. So why is he agonizing over these believers that he has never met? Why do you think? What's that? Yeah, he's heard things that are concerning to them. That's exactly right. 
But I think there's something else here. I think Paul is agonizing over all the believers he's never met with because he's never had a chance to warn them about some of the problems that he has seen. That's what this whole letter is about. It's what many of his letters are about. His letters to the churches that he's been to go something like this. I can't believe this was, I think, the letter to the Galatians. I can't believe you're so quickly moving away from what you were first taught. It's like, I I told you guys, I warned you guys. His letter to the Corinthians, both letters to the Corinthians were were some scathing rebukes. I actually want to show you some, some bits of those in a little bit. But Paul is agonizing over people that he's never met. I think it's because he never got a chance to give them the Apostle Paul's 101 course on avoiding church conflict. He never got a chance to sit down with them and have a day-long discussion about how to spot false teachers, how to spot things creeping into the church, these spiritual additives that might damage the church. And so Paul is hearing about these things, like Tara said, from a a distance, and, and he's so concerned about them because he's never had a chance to warn them. All the believers that he's never met in person, he's agonizing for them. In the church in Laodicea, he's never met in person. All the believers, Paul agonizes over them because he's never had a chance to tell them about all the problems he's seen develop in churches and how to avoid them. That's why he's writing this letter. We've talked before about how Colossians is like a a rumble strip letter. He wants to warn them before they go too far. The apostle Paul knows how unhealthy people can come in and tear a church apart. He knows how some people who claim to be Christians can be very misguided and can end up leading other Christians astray. And so he agonizes for them and he says in the next verse, I want them to be encouraged and knit together by strong ties of love. So this is why he's agonizing for them. He's concerned that if they let the wrong things into the church, the wrong influences into the church, that they may not stay knit together. They may rip apart. They may experience divisions just like other churches he has worked in have. The the church in Corinth is probably the best example of this. He wrote two letters that we have anyway to the church in Corinth. And in both letters, Paul is rebuking them and very blunt with them, telling them to knock it off with the divisions in the church. In the first letter, he finds out that they've got these different factions that have formed in the church over their different kind of views and, and convictions over things. And they're kind of fighting against each other and separating from each other and not treating each other as one unified body of Christ. And Paul writes to them to say, this is not the way it should be. He says in in chapter 1, verse 10, I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, to live in harmony with each other, let there be no divisions in the church. Rather, be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. And then after he writes this letter, a little bit later, he hears that the divisions are still happening. There are still people who are leaders in the church who are are dividing people up and are even criticizing Paul's authority and leadership. And so he writes this to them in chapter 10 of 2 Corinthians. He says, now I, Paul, appeal to you with the gentleness and kindness of Christ, though I realize you think I am timid in person and bold only when I write from afar away. Can you imagine being Paul and having that sense like, people have told him this, right? That, yeah, they say that you write these harsh letters, but in person, you're just, you're too gentle. And so they don't believe you're going to do anything about it. He says, I realize that you think I am timid in person and bold when I write from far away. Well, I am begging you now so that when I come, I won't have to be bold with those who think we act from human motives. A little bit later, he says, after you have become fully obedient, we will punish everyone who remains disobedient. Then he says, for some say Paul's letters are demanding and forceful, but in person he is weak 
and his speeches are worthless, those people should realize that our actions when we arrive in person will be as forceful as what we say in our letters from far away. Paul was no pushover. And he didn't mess around with people who were causing divisions in the church. But if at all possible, he wanted to prevent them from happening in the first place. He doesn't want to have to write a letter to the Colossians like he had to write to the Corinthians. We've said before that the letters to the Corinthians were like guardrail letters. The Corinthian church was already hitting up against the guardrails. And the letter to the Colossians is a rumble strip letter. They're on the right track, but he wants to lay down some rumble strips to warn them and make sure that they don't get off track either way. So he says, I want the believers to be knit together by strong ties of love. The word that's used for knit together, it's one word in the Greek, and it could also be translated as held together or joined together. Paul uses this word in Ephesians chapter 4 when he's talking about the body of Christ, and he says that he wants the body of Christ, the members of the church, to be joined together, held together, knit together, like the ligaments and joints hold together the body. It's this interwoven, interconnected thing where where the parts are all kind of meshed with each other and together and and they they do life together and they care for each other and they love one another and they bear each other's burdens and when times get tough, they're there to step in and at one time, this person may be down and this person's helping them out and then in a year, the roles may be reversed and it's just this intertwining of lives that are going through life together and helping each other move forward in their walk with Jesus. And the intertwining aspect of this, the knitting together, means that if any of it is ripped apart, it hurts. It's devastating. When you take something that's woven together like this, knit together, or like a body, when you, when you tear a limb off of that, you can't do that without causing major damage. This is exactly what the church is. All these different people, different personalities, different backgrounds, different giftings and abilities, different points on our spiritual journeys, all these diverse people come together to form the body of Christ. And when something gets introduced to that, some additive, some fixation, some obsession, some elevation of something small into something big, making a a mountain out of a molehill, whatever it is that gets added to form a wedge in the body of Christ, and it starts to rip apart the body of Christ, what happens? It hurts. It hurts the body of Christ. And this is what Paul is concerned about in Colossians. He's seen it in other churches. What are some things that could get added to rip a church apart? Could be someone taking a preference and treating it like a doctrine. For those of you that are new, uh, we have a series called the Undivided Series at efree.org slash undivided. All of our new members go through the Undivided Series now uh, because we want our church to have an undivided mindset We want our church to understand that there are four main buckets of belief, and if we get the right beliefs in the right buckets, we won't experience as much division in our church. And so some people can treat things from the preference bucket like they are in the doctrine bucket. Some people can treat things from the conviction bucket like they go in the dogma bucket, and they elevate things to a higher level than they should be, and that can cause division. It could be something that's actually objectively good that becomes an obsession for people. It could be something that's a perfectly fine preference to have or something that in moderation is actually a really good element to have, but when it gets blown out of proportion and it gets exaggerated or when what's good for one person, they try to force on other people in the church and they won't take no for an answer, then that can cause division in the church. It could be taking some teaching that actually minimizes Jesus or takes away from a focus on Jesus and elevating that to a level of importance in someone's life and then trying to spread that to other people. 
Now, I've seen all of these things happen in churches that I've been in. I was in a church many years ago where there was a couple who came to know Jesus through the ministry of that church. After a couple of years, they got introduced to someone who was not part of our church. We'd never heard of them before, but they were in a cult that basically took the gospel and twisted it and distorted it and added a bunch of other things so that it really wasn't the gospel anymore. It was completely different. It was a very strange cult. And they got sucked into this cult. And then one Sunday they came back to our church and they stood out in the lobby and they had pamphlets from their new cult that they were trying to convert our people to join their cult. You may have never experienced something like this. I've experienced all of this. I know it's very possible to see this in our churches and we as a church need to be aware of it. And watch out for it. We need to have the rumble strips in place. I was in a church once where there was a group of people who formed a faction around a certain conviction. They treated this conviction like it was doctrine or maybe even dogma for some people. In fact, for some people, they, if you didn't have this conviction, they didn't believe you were really a follower of Jesus. And they got so obsessed with this, they started having secret meetings about this. And they started trying to recruit new people to join their cause and join their faction. And they tried to make changes in the church to, to um, do certain things that would only align with their viewpoint and restrict anything that wouldn't align with their viewpoint, even though it was not a major point of doctrine at all. And that did rip the church apart. That caused an absolute church split that, that many of those families have never recovered from. And the, and the kids of the people that were involved in that ripping apart, um, some major challenges have happened there because of that. The legacy of that division is still seen today. I've seen all this stuff firsthand. Paul saw it firsthand in his churches. He did not want that for the church in Colossae. So what's his solution? How are we to stay knit together? What is Paul's, what's Paul's solution for what keeps us knit together, held together in the body of Christ? His solution is love. Love is what holds us together. It's the first element in our healthy spiritual diet. We need to have love for each other. It's love that holds us together. Why is that? Because love covers a multitude of sins, 1 Peter 4.8 says. In the body of Christ, I was telling this to somebody a couple weeks ago. They were new to the church. They were sharing with me their perspective on things, which is a little different than our perspective on things. And I said, I'm just going to be honest with you. There are going to be people here who will offend you. There are going to be people here who are going to say something that's going to seem unkind to you or inappropriate, and they may not mean it that way, but we are a bunch of broken sinners. We are. That's what we are. Every one of us, myself included. We are a bunch of broken, sinful people. We are going to have sin in our church. People here will do things with a, with a bad motive that will be sinful against you. But if we have love, it covers up for a multitude of sins. If we can't figure out that out, then we don't have love. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable. It keeps no record of being wronged. If we truly live that way, if we commit to live that way in our lives, if we truly have that kind of love for each other in the body of Christ, then any disagreements that we have will never be allowed to turn into divisions. If you can't keep record of wrongs, if you're not allowed to hold on to that thing they did that you didn't like, that you felt they wronged you, if you have to be patient with people, if you can't demand getting your own way, then yeah, the body of Christ will be held together by bonds of love. That's how it works. It's part of this healthy spiritual diet we are supposed to have. Let's look at another one. Verse, verses 2 and 3. 
Paul says, I want them to have complete confidence that they understand God's mysterious plan, which is Christ himself. In him lie hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So Paul is saying he wants them to have confidence in God's mysterious plan, which is Jesus Christ. Now, we talked about this mysterious plan earlier in the study, the mysterious plan that Jesus Christ is the, is the visible image of the invisible God. God was very much a mystery to people in the Old Testament, and Jesus made him much more clear, much more plain. Paul said that the fact that Jesus would live inside people and bring his righteousness for them from the inside out was something that wasn't understood in the past. It wasn't understood before Christ. Back then, people, before Jesus came, they knew that God could save them and they could have faith in God to save them, but they didn't know the mechanism he would use to do it. That was B.C., before Christ. But then the Son of God came to this earth and he lived a perfect life, Jesus Christ. And he died on a cross, taking the sin of the world on him so that he could pay our price. And then he rose again from the dead so that he could represent us before God and so that his righteousness and his sacrifice could be applied to us, his goodness could be applied to us so that when God looks at us, he doesn't see us as the sinful people we are. Yes, we are all broken, sinful people, but that's not how God sees us. Paul makes that clear in Colossians. God sees us as holy and blameless and without a fault. And because of what Jesus did, the mystery was no longer a mystery. Paul wants, his, wants the believers to understand the mystery, which is Jesus Christ. We can have confidence in God's plan, which is the mystery revealed in Jesus Christ. And one of the reasons that's important is because of what's not in that plan. What's not in that mysterious plan? He didn't say the mysterious plan is Jesus Christ and your good works. He didn't say the mysterious plan is Jesus Christ and attending church. He didn't say it's Jesus Christ and obeying the Mosaic laws. He didn't say it's Jesus Christ and anything else. Because the mysterious plan is Jesus, end of story. In him lie hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That means we don't need to seek any deeper truth anywhere else. We don't need to look somewhere else for something that's going to somehow make our lives more spiritual to God. Now, that's not to say that we don't read books and follow materials which help us to explain Jesus' teachings, but we don't need to add anything to what Jesus has taught us through his word in order to be right with God. If you were to live in a place where you could not access any of the amazing books and resources that we have today, and all you had were the teachings of Jesus, you'd be okay. You'd know what you'd need. You'd have what you'd need, and the Holy Spirit would work through that in your spiritual life. Understanding that we don't need to add anything to the teachings of Jesus gives us confidence. Confidence that everything we need, we already have in him. It's already in this book. It's in the teachings of Jesus in the New Testament. The wisdom and knowledge we might seek that some people, and, I, and this may not apply to all of you. I understand that. Some of you may be thinking, I've never been tempted to go look off in here, but I have enough conversations with people in our church to know that for some people, this is a, is a very real thing. We don't need to go diving into Buddhism or Hinduism or all the other religions and try to add something to our Christianity to somehow complete our scriptural puzzle or our spiritual puzzle rather. Everything we need is in Jesus Christ, and, and the wisdom and the knowledge that is found in his teaching is so rich and it's so deep that you could spend a lifetime studying it and never exhaust it. The teachings of Jesus are, are what we need, and so ingredient number two is that learning from Christ gives us confidence. Learning from Christ gives us confidence. He has all the wisdom and knowledge we need. That means we don't need to live in doubt 
or fear or anxiety, spiritual anxiety of there being something we're missing, some missing element of our spiritual lives, something else that we have to make sure we discover and add to it, the secret, whatever it is, something extra that we're supposed to add on there. None of that is what God wants us to focus on. We don't need to worry about what we're missing. If we have Jesus, we have his teachings, we're not missing anything. I mentioned this in a previous message, but it's worth saying again. The teachings we find in the New Testament all come from the teachings of Jesus. So when we're talking about learning from Jesus and, and, and uh, learning from his teachings, we have to understand that those teachings were passed on to us faithfully through the letters and the books of the New Testament. And here's how that worked. Jesus taught his followers for three years, and then he told them to go and make disciples and teach them everything I have taught you. He also said the Holy Spirit is going to be given to you to remind you of all the things I've taught you. So those followers then wrote down what Jesus taught them. You say, what about Paul? Didn't he come later? Yes, but Paul says in Galatians, he says, the stuff that I'm teaching you did not come from any human, but from Jesus Christ himself. He wanted people to know he got his stuff right from Jesus too. That's where Paul was getting his teaching from. John, when he wrote the book of Revelation, and he he gets carried off into heaven, and he sees all these things, the, the person who tells him what to write to the seven churches is Jesus Christ. And then Jesus says, the other stuff you're going to see here, write that down too. So all of the teaching of the New Testament comes, back, comes from Jesus. It stems from Jesus, and that's where we learn. As we study and we read it and we learn, we explore it, we talk about it with each other, that's how we learn how Jesus wants us to live and think and believe and how to make our lives more like him. If you want to learn from Jesus, you've got to study his teachings. The closer we follow Jesus, the more confidence we can have that we don't need anything else on the internet on youtube on the latest spiritual fad book whatever it is there can be great things that help to illuminate and help us understand the context and explain jesus teachings. but we don't need anything new added to it and here's why this is so important to paul he says in verse four i am telling you this here's why here's the why guys here's why this is so important you think this is me saying the same thing over again here's why this is so important i am telling you this so that no one will deceive you with well-crafted arguments they're going to sound really good they're going to sound really convincing it's going to make a lot of sense for though i am far away from you my heart is with you he's never met these people but my heart is with you and i rejoice that you are living as you should and that your faith in christ is strong remember as we've said the colossian church is on the right path You're living as you should. Your faith in Christ is strong, but I'm going to put down some rumble strips to make sure that you stay on the right path. And he says, and now, just as you accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, you must continue to follow him. Stay on the right path. Continue to follow him. Literally, that phrase, follow him, means live with Jesus Christ. Live with Christ. In the Greek, that sentence in verse 6 doesn't end there. In our translation here, there's a period there, but Paul loved long sentences. He would have been an English teacher's nightmare. He just had run-on sentence after run-on sentence, big, long sentences. And so he's got a sentence here, which is a pretty sizable sentence, and he takes verse 6, and then verse 7 is actually just tacked onto that. It's got a bunch of, I think, they're participle phrases that all point back to the follow him here. So the follow him, which means live with Christ, has these four elements that are tied to it. In verse 7, it says, let your roots grow down into him. Be rooted in Christ, some versions say. Let your lives be built on him. So two pictures there. Let your roots grow down into him and let your lives be built on him. Two different metaphors that he's using there, like a tree growing deep roots and like a house that's being built on a strong foundation. Then your faith, two promises, then your faith will grow strong in the truth you were taught and you will overflow with thankfulness. 
There's so much we could talk about here, but I just want to focus on one aspect of it, and I'll do it through a story. So there was a man who was touring an orange grove, and as he was walking around with his tour group, the tour guy was taking him around, and these trees looked sickly. They were, they were obviously dying and withering. You know, the leaves were all brown and falling off, even though they should, have been, they should have been fine, because it was an unusually dry season. They hadn't had rain for a few weeks, and it was really devastating the orange crop. And after they finished touring the orange grove, the tour guide took the group to another orange grove that was nearby, and they walked into this place, and the trees looked fine. Everything looked great. The leaves were on them. There were oranges growing. Everything looked fine. And the one guy said to the tour guide, well, how can this be that we just went to a place where the trees were all withering and dying, and yet this place they seem to be doing fine? And the tour guide also said, oh, man, these trees could handle a few more weeks of no rain, probably. Here's why. When they were first planted, they were not given water at a shallow level in the ground. And so they had to grow deeper roots to find the moisture that they needed. And so now, whenever they had a difficult time, because their roots have grown so deep, they go deeper to find the moisture and the nutrients that they need, and they can survive a difficult time much better. That's the kind of picture we need to have in mind when it comes to our spiritual lives, our spiritual diets. See, the time to go deep is not when it's needed, it's before it's needed. It's a preparation for the difficult time ahead. Now, that's not to say if you aren't in a difficult time right now, you shouldn't try to go ahead and go deep. Do that. But even if you're not, the time is now to let your roots grow deep into Christ, not just with an occasional Bible verse, not just with a cool magnet on the fridge, not just attending a weekly service. Your whole life needs to be built on Jesus. Don't let Sunday be the only day you read a Bible. Don't let mealtime be the only time you pray. Don't let church be the only place you live like you follow Jesus. To experience the incredible life that Jesus wants you to have, you have to go deep. Your roots have to go deep into him. You have to invest in this relationship with Jesus. And then you get these promises. Your faith will grow strong in the truth you will taught. You will overflow in thankfulness. That means even in the hard times, you'll have so much thankfulness because your roots have grown so deep and you're tapped into that source of spiritual health and spiritual life that is Jesus Christ and his teachings and what you've learned from him, that even as you face difficult times in life, you're still going to be thankful. Have you ever met one of those people? I mean, maybe, the, maybe you are that person, but you're probably also humble enough to not admit it. So have you ever met one of those people where they're so thankful even when they're going through a very difficult time? It's because their roots are deep. And their roots were probably deep before they got into that difficult time. So when those tough times come, when they're faced with difficult challenges, when they're faced with, with friends who are saying hard things to them, friends who have allowed these additives into their lives and are letting them creep in, maybe even losing friends over it, they're able to say, I'm so thankful for what Jesus has done for me and for what I've learned from him and for the walk that I have with him. My life is built on him. And even if I lose this and even if I lose that, no matter what happens here, my, my foundation is Jesus. My roots are deep into him and I can still be thankful. To God be the glory, no matter what happens in my life. The sad reality is that many Christians have only allowed their roots to grow very shallow. They're a follower of Jesus. They trusted in him, but they never went deep. And so they're constantly faced with these difficult, troubling times where they don't have the depth to be able to deal with them and, and to face difficulty with the, the kind of, of strength to stand firm. But this is what Paul wants for the church in Colossae. He says, don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies, 
and high-sounding nonsense that comes from human thinking and the spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. He's talking about some of these additives come from humans and some of these additives come from demons who are influencing and reaching in and affecting the church. And Paul is putting up these, these rumble strips to guard against this. But this is what deep roots can help you avoid. Let your roots grow deep into Christ. Let your lives be built on him so that you won't be infected, influenced, drawn away by some of these teachings that can just keep your roots very shallow. Growing deep roots in Christ keeps us on track. Growing deep roots in Christ keeps us on track. It keeps us from drifting. And by the way, just as an aside, the weekly worship service here is not the best way for your roots to grow deep. I know that sounds very strange coming from me, but this gathering is not the premier way where your roots are going to grow deep. This is a starting point. This is, this is surface level because we've got a large group of people here. Every time I'm preparing a message, I'm preparing with the, with the knowledge that I'm going to have some people that are far from God and some people that are anti-God even and some people that are just exploring and interested and some people that have been Christians for a few months or a couple of years and then some people that have been Christians for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And so that means when we gather here as a church on the weekend, we're trying to set a table for everybody where there's something for everybody. I call it putting cookies on every shelf. Some preachers try to put all the cookies on the lower shelf. And so the people that have been Christians a long time, they don't don't learn much. They don't get much out of it. Some preachers put all the cookies on the high shelf. And the people that are just exploring or new go, I have no idea what he's talking about. It's over my head. Talking about homardiology in church today? I don't know what that is. It's the doctrine of sin, by the way. But I want to put cookies on every shelf. I want to make sure that the whole body of Christ can gather. But just like the early church in Jerusalem, the goal is not for your roots to grow deep just from this weekly gathering. You know, the early church in Jerusalem, which was bigger than our church is today, they gathered weekly on the temple steps to worship God together, but then they split up into homes during the week. Did you know that? That's the model of the New Testament church. The model of the New Testament church is the large regional church gathers together once a week to worship God, and then throughout the week they're in each other's lives. You know, every week we put out discussion questions to go along with these sermons. So yesterday, if you're one of our group leaders, you got an email with all the discussion questions. There's six, seven, eight discussion questions there to help you dig deeper into this so that you can make it apply to wherever you're at right now. You want your roots to grow deep? You've got to make the circle smaller. You've got to get into a situation where you're talking about these things with other people. Maybe it's a discipleship group. Maybe it's with your family. Maybe it's with other trusted friends. Maybe it's with an actual small group or a Sunday morning group that we have here. Whatever that is, you need to go deep. And you can do that together if you gather with smaller groups of people. One more thing Paul shares about spiritual health. He says in verse 9, For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. So you also are complete through your union with Christ, who is the head over every ruler and authority. I'm just going to give you the last spiritual health ingredient, which is this. Living in Christ makes us complete. Living in Christ makes us complete. This may sound a bit redundant, but it's actually really profound because this whole um, chapter, this whole book so far... What Paul has been talking about is Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Focus on Jesus. He is the creator. He is the sustainer. He is all sufficient. He is everything that you need. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And now it all switches over to Jesus makes you complete. He shifts the attention around. And now it's Jesus makes you complete. Jesus is everything. And because you have Jesus, you have all that you need. Jesus makes you complete. You don't need to look elsewhere. 
Your relationship with Jesus is what makes you complete. And be honest with yourself right now. If you're really being honest with yourself, do you ever feel like you're just missing stuff in your life? Do you ever feel like, man, I, just, I, wish, I, had, I wish I had this, or I wish I did more of this. I wish I had that talent. I wish I had that ability. I wish I had something else. I feel like it's not enough. If I just do more, it'll be enough. If I just had that relationship, it will be enough. If I just, uh, have, if I just could earn a little bit more, that will be enough. If I just could do more good, then God would be happy with me. I talk to people all the time that that's how they feel. Like they're never living up to God's standard and God's always looking down on them and he's frustrated with them and he's upset with them because they keep making mistakes. And what they don't understand is what Paul says in this, in this book in the previous chapter, that God sees you through the lens of his son, Jesus Christ. Does he want you to live a, a, a holy life? Does he want you to live righteously? Absolutely. But when he looks at you as his child, he sees you through the lens of Jesus Christ and he sees you as holy and blameless and without fault, Paul says in, in Colossians. And so Paul can say that in Jesus Christ, you are complete. If you've trusted in Jesus, you are complete in your union with him and he is fully God, he says. He's got all of God in him. So if you have Jesus in you, you have all of God in you, making you holy and making you perfect, even though that is not realized in your life today. That's how God sees you and how one day you will really be. The reality is we are not enough. But thank God Jesus is enough. He makes us complete. He gives us all that we need. And my question for you today as we close is, what is distracting you? What is creeping into your life that's an additive that's taking away from your understanding and your confidence that Jesus is all you need? What is keeping you from growing roots that are deep in Jesus Christ? I'm gonna ask you to do something right now just so that you can think about this. Would you close your eyes for a minute? Just close your eyes and picture a house. It can be your house, it can be any house, but there are different rooms in this house. There's a living room and a kitchen and a dining room and a couple bathrooms and bedrooms and all that stuff. And every one of these rooms has a label on it for an aspect of your life. So one of these rooms is about your job and one of these rooms is about your marriage and one of these rooms is, is about your kids and one of these rooms is about your hobbies or your school, your media, your personal time. You've got all these different rooms for different things. Look through these rooms of your life and ask this question. Is there any room in my life that is not built on Jesus? Is there any room in my life where he is not the one who is the foundation for this? If Jesus were to walk into this room of my life right now, he would say, this doesn't look familiar to me. This was not built on me. This was an add-on. This was tacked onto the house, and it wasn't even given a concrete foundation. It was just sort of built onto the ground. I don't recognize this place. My prayer for you today is that if you can identify a room in your house that was not built on Jesus Christ, you'll take steps to fix that this week. That you'll seek God and, and, and repent of this and confess it to him and ask him to help you rebuild that area of your life to be built on him. And then focus your efforts on letting your roots grow deep into Jesus, just as Paul told us to, so that we can avoid the problems that can divide us and take our focus off of Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us right now. Heavenly Father, you have, you have given us an incredible caution in your word to keep our eyes fixed on you, to let our lives be built on you, to let our roots grow deep into you and all of these different metaphors that you give us, let them not be lost on us today. Jesus, I pray that you would help us to see. Help me to see, God, where, where are the areas in my life right now that are not built on you. Lord, help, help me to see if there's an area where I have not 
let those roots grow deep and they're too shallow. And that's why I experience the difficulties and the troubles and the anxiety that I do sometimes in my life. Lord, I pray that you would show me the areas that I need to give over to you and surrender to you. God, I pray for every one of us that you would teach us through your word and through your Holy Spirit how to renovate these rooms of our life so that they are completely built on you, so that we can have confidence in you, so that we can share that confidence with others and our lives will glorify you. Thank you, Jesus, for what you have done for us, for what you have given us. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for for the amazing grace that makes it possible for us to live a life we could never have imagined before. And God, help us to live like it. Help us now as we remember your amazing grace and we praise you for it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.